the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. episode, which has been strategically aligned with the start of saguaro fruit season, you'll hear from Giselle Ramon Sabaron. She's a PhD student in American Indian Studies at the University of Arizona. She's also a Tohonoatham history and culture teacher at the Tohonoatham Community College. We're talking about food from her side of the beautiful Sonoran Desert. So, Giselle, can you tell me about uh, saguaro uh, fruit season? Sure. So, for the Thanatham, my tribe, this time of year is when we go out and pick saguaro fruit, which we pronounce baitach. And for us, it symbolizes our New Year. So, like many celebrate, you know, New Year's January 1st, for us, our autumn New Year is not necessarily a date but it's a season, and it takes place now. We go out and we pick the fruit, and we harvest it, and we make syrup, jam, and then it can also be made into wine, which is used for ceremonial purposes. We have a ceremony, and the ceremony is to give thanks to Mother Nature, but also to, to welcome the rains since it's monsoon season here in southern Arizona. There's a, a whole process to uh, picking the fruit. Can you tell me about it? I mean, picking the fruit, it's like, you know, it's not with your hands, of course, because these cactuses are huge, tall, towering cactuses in uh, Arizona. Uh, t- tell me what it, what it physically looks like to get those fruits. First of all, you have to make sure you go out when it's cool, because right now in Tucson, it's getting into triple digits. It's not quite 115 yet, mm. but... Typically, you go out early in the morning or you go out in the evening time. We use, actually, saguaro ribs. So when the cactus dies, you know, and it kind of starts deteriorating, there's ribs inside that you can pull out. And we use those and we connect them. A long time ago, they used to use fiber to be able to connect the saguaro sticks to make them long enough to be able to reach the saguaro fruit on the top. Um, But nowadays, you usually use wire. And then at the very top, you kind of make this kind of like an X um, with a smaller piece of swirl rib. And that's what you use to be able to pull down the fruit. You know, we'll have someone who has the swirl uh, stick, and then you have someone that's trying to catch it in a bucket, or they collect it, you know, after um, it drops on the ground. Of course, you have to be careful because on the swirl fruit, you know, there's stickers all on the outside. So, you know, you wear gloves or... You know, if you're really good at it, you know, you can go barehanded. And um, on the very tip of the saguaro fruit, there's this stem, this black stem, and it's hard. Usually what you do is you break that off, and it's sharp, and you use it as a knife, and you cut open the saguaro fruit, and then that's how you're able to pick everything out of it. And we don't take the outside of the saguaro fruit. We leave that. Um, at the bottom of 
the wherever you pick from that's the world to kind of in a way it's like you're giving thanks or you're giving that back to mother nature and also to you know birds can be able to you know pick from it as well so that's that's that part of it at the beginning that's just picking it from there it's taking it back and you have to dry out the seeds and let them lay out in the sun for a certain period of time and make sure the birds don't get to it, you know, and then after that, it takes, you know, time to cook it. And then you have to strain all the seeds out of it because when you look, if you've never seen sorrel fruit, um, it's very vibrant in color. It's really red, but has all these tiny black seeds in it. So that's what we have to strain out of it to be able to just get the actual, um, depending on what you're making, like the syrup or the juice and, and the wine out of it. But yeah, it's a whole process that, you know, doesn't happen just overnight. Um, it definitely takes time for all these different things to kind of, you know, steps to come together before you have the final product, which, you know, then usually we um, can it and then able to keep it and store it and, you know, use it for um, whether, you know, just want something sweet or, you know, if you want to dip your tortilla in there or maybe even, you know, drizzle on your pancakes or your waffles, whatever you want to do with it, um, if you're using it for a syrup. You know, if it's a jam, then you can put it on your toast or um, biscuit, whatever you have. But also, too, people don't realize that if you've never had it or if you have had it, you know it's really sweet in taste and it's all natural. There's nothing added to it. We don't, you know, put any sugars or anything in it. It's just all natural flavor, and it's really tasty. Mm. Uh, can you describe the taste for me? Is it like a strawberry or like a mango or something like that? I've never had to describe the taste for anybody, but if I were <laughs> to describe it, I guess I would say something like like a strawberry um, or like a berry kind of flavor to it. Okay. Uh, what, what's your favorite way to eat the fruit? I actually really prefer to just eat it straight. <laughs> the first time you go and you pick of the season, you have to bless yourself with the sorrel fruit, and you can taste a little bit of it. So that's my favorite way of having it. But but typically, uh, my family makes syrup, or as we call sitor, out of it, and I love dipping my tortilla in it, and it kind of it's really gives it like the sweet taste, um, kind of like a sweet bread almost in a way. When I used to live out of state, I'd always come home and make sure that I would be here um, to be able to harvest. But one year I wasn't able to come home. I was actually studying abroad in Italy for a summer program. So my mom saved it a can for me and um, or a jar for me, and I was able to come home. And that was the first thing I did. I got a tortilla, and I dipped it in there. And I was like, oh, I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> So where did you learn how to pick fruit from your parents, your elders? My mom. My mom is the one that um, is where I've gotten all my cultural teachings from. And I've been doing it for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, we'd go out, me and her, um, we'd pick and she'd teach me everything, you know, from why we do it to the process to, um, you know, even telling me little stories about herself growing up and going out to places like the Soro National Park West to be able to, you know, going and picking and everything and um, stuff like that. So it was a real bonding time between my mom and I 
And now it's kind of evolved to I help her teach my nieces. My sister has six kids and um, five are girls. You know, I spend a lot of time with them. They love going out every year. Even right now, the fruit is starting to ripen and we haven't gone out yet to pick. You know, they're asking my mom and myself, you know, Auntie, when are we going to go out? Are the fruit ready? You know, I see them, you know, different things like that. So it's kind of now become generational. And it's a lot, it's like that for a lot of them families where, you know, you have, I don't know how many different generations out there now picking. And, you know, there's also autumn families that have their own little camps. There's also, um, you know, autumn groups that are on the nation that are putting together their own camps and welcoming, you know, anybody from the community that either wants to learn or, you know, other autumn that want to help out. You know, it's, it's really awesome to see this time of year and seeing all of us go out. And even, you know, with us on Autumn Nation, we have 11 districts. So my district, the Santa Vera District, put together also camp to go out and pick. And, you know, we have vans that will go take however many participants. And they'll pick all the morning, and then they'll come back, and then they'll start cooking. And then they'll kind of be educational, cultural educational um stories told or, you know, different things that take place throughout the day. So the younger generations learn and are able to have that knowledge. So they're able to pass it on to their kids or, you know, their brothers, sisters, cousins, and so forth. And I should mention just for the listeners that the Tohono O'odham Nation is the second largest uh, Indian reservation in the country, which is just in South uh, Arizona on the border of um, the U.S. and uh, Mexico. And uh, just I want to ask you about um, just the saguaro cactus in the the nation there. How how many are there? And um, uh, I know you mentioned the saguaro national park. Do you, do you does a lot of the picking go on? in the park? I have no idea how many sororos there are. That'd be a good, like, survey question for someone <laughs> to actually go out and do. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the Sororo National Park, there's a west and east here in Tucson. Mm. And my family and a lot of other autumn families mostly go to the west side because there's actually a sororo fruit um, camp there. And it was started... A long time ago, way before there's even the establishment of the Saguaro National Park. And like I'd mentioned earlier, um, a lot of autumn would go and harvest and pick in that area because if you've never been to the Saguaro National Park, it's just Saguaros everywhere, like massive amounts of Saguaros. They would set up camp, go out and pick. And that's one of the stories my mom would tell me when she was little about going and camping and, you know, getting up early in the morning and walking to different areas to be able to pick. And um, there's other autumn families that would join or they'd see them, you know, different things like that. And so, but ever since the Sora National Park became a park and was established, there's like a permit every year that the Don Autumn Nation has to sign with Sora National Park to allow us to go and pick saguaro fruit. And there's only designated areas within the Saguaro National Park where we're able to go and pick. But there is, like I said, the saguaro fruit camp that's there. Basically, it's one family gone from, you know, uh, generation to generation. And now Stella Tucker, who has ran it for a really long time, you know, is getting 
ready to kind of have her daughter kind of take over and her daughter's out there helping her out all the time. Also, too, you know, she welcomes non-Autum to come out and learn and pick and everything and learn the process with um, our sorrel fruit. So it's really good educational, you know, place. And it's kind of off the road. And you, you know, it's always a, you have to look for a, this rusty gate to be able to turn and go into, and it's kind of hidden. That's kind of one area, you know, and like I said, the other there's other families that have their own spots within their districts or their communities where they're able to go and pick. For example, another area that I know has plentiful um, floral fruit and cactuses is um, in a community where my grandfather is from, is Sinanage. Last year, I went out there and picked in that area, and I had no idea that there were so many swirls in that particular area. And again, it's kind of hidden unless, you know, you know the spots out there, and that's another area. And I know there's some people that go out to Florida National Park East, but um, like I said, my family's always gone out on the west side to be able to pick you shared a story a couple of days ago uh, from a Tucson paper uh, that mentioned, um, you know, the T.O. Nation was uh, allowed to pick fruit this season. I mean, you know, it sounds like documents were signed and everything uh, from the from the National Park. What what is what does that word, you know, allowed mean to you? That's been always one of those situations I've always struggled with. Because this is our traditional land. This is our all this area where the Florida National Park is, everything. We now have to get permission to go on to our ancestral lands, our traditional lands, to be able to do something that we've been doing for time immemorial. You know, and it, it's always one of those things that kind of makes you a little angry. Why should we have to ask for permission when we've been doing this for so long? Furthermore, with that article... They had to do an environmental assessment, you know, on gathering of plants by Indian tribes before we could continue. And it kind of, to me, was a little bit of an insult because I felt like, why does this have to be done? We know how to pick the fruit. We know not, you know, how much to pick. We know how to do all this. We've been doing it for forever. But they had to assess to make sure that, you know, we weren't taking too much or we weren't, whatever, killing off the saguaros or, you know, making sure that there's still saguaro fruit to be harvested. You know, we've always been taught, you know, in my tribe and with myself that, you know, you don't take too much. You just take what you need. You take enough. So that way, you know, when next year comes around, there's still plenty of fruit to be picked you know, harvest and to keep the harvest going every year. So it was kind of like, a lot of us are kind of like, what, what is this? You know, for myself, I was kind of baffled by it. You know, then they're like, oh, we realize you guys are fine to go and pick there. And it's kind of like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. In the past, many of them have had issues, including my family, with going and picking in the Sorrel National Park. There's been park employees that weren't necessarily on board or knew that we'd be out there. And I, I remember being young and having our park ranger come up and tell us that we had to leave. But also, too, you have people that come through that are just, you know, driving through the park. They'll come and harass you or be like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And a lot of times they're naive. 
And, you know, we had an instance the other year where we had someone who kind of got really came up to my family and were yelling at us and saying that we had no right to be there. Thankfully, our relationship with the Soro National Park has, you know, become better. You know, I was able to call one of my friends who works there and she got it taken care of. And that person was found, talked to about his actions. Like I said, there's improvement there. But then you have things like we're talking about with this article that pops up about, you know, having to do an environmental uh, assessment on the gathering of plants by Indian tribes. And you're just kind of like, what is this? Thankfully, you know, we're able another year to go and pick in the park and harvest and, you know, have the Bayadach camp or Soro fruit camp. You know, you're mentioning, um, I think you're mentioning uh, TEK, uh, traditional ecological knowledge, is something that a lot of people don't really understand and a lot of people kind of disregard. That's why you see stuff like um, these environmental assessments, like we just have to make sure that you guys are doing it right or, you know, all these studies finally catching up to what we've already known for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. Is your part as, you know, like a history and culture teacher to sort of um, bring more bring more light to that? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's like, even when I'm talking about with my nieces, you know, the TEK is so important to pass on to, you know, even my generation and then the younger generations and, you know, everything that my mom, my grandma, my aunties, you know, all my family have instilled in me, you know, it's my job to pass that on. And especially, you know, when it comes to things like our swirl harvest, you know, our swirl fruit harvest, and we don't want that to die. We want that to be carried on. It's super important. And to also know how to go about Picking, like I said, there's all these steps and all, you know, everything that goes into it and be able to know that and be able to carry it on. And, you know, like I've mentioned before, we've been doing this for time immemorial. You know, it's important to keep it going forever. You know, that's why I'm really thankful for individuals like Stella Tucker and having, you know, carrying on the fight that she camp from, um, you know, her elders and, you know, and then her teaching her daughter, one of her daughters and, you know, who eventually will carry it on. And then even, like, for myself and my family, I don't have any children yet, but, you know, I have my nieces, and I'm able to share with them everything I've learned. But, yeah, you know, and it's kind of, you know, crazy to realize that there are them that never have gone out and picked the sorrel fruit. And to me, I mean, crazy, you know, kind of just, like, shocked me a little bit because, you know, for myself, I'm like, oh, I'll let them go out and do this all the time, you know, every summer. And But then there's some that have never had that opportunity, that privilege, you know, to be able to go and do that. And so I discovered this with a group that I help run, which is the Southern Autumn Student Association at the University of Arizona. We had uh, quite a few members who is a mix of autumn non-autumn and non-native that are in our group, but there's a lot of autumn that just never had gone. We actually worked with the Swirl National Park West and were able to take, you know, a big group out to Stella Tucker's camp. You know, they were able to pick Swirl fruit for the very first time. You know, that was, to me, was really rewarding. And my mom even went out 
there with us. And so she got to see and, um, you know, talk with the students as well and kind of help with the harvesting with whatever Stella needed. You know, she's known Stella for a really long time. And so it was a really good, you know, experience. And I keep asking, you know, since then, I'm like, are you going to have um, another Biotouch camp? Are you going to bring people out? Because, you know, I want to bring people out, you know, whether they're awesome or not awesome, you know, to have that opportunity and that experience, even if it's the only time in their life that they ever go and pick, it's super important that they had that opportunity to do that. Or maybe, you know, they, they pick it up and they start going every year, you know, and or they reach out to family and want to know more about it and get involved, you know, whatever. But just having that one opportunity, you know, is really amazing and awesome. And, you know, I'm thankful, too, that I'm able to go out every year. And like I said, wherever I'm at, I've made it home every year in the summer to go and pick you know, except for that one year when I was, or one summer I was in Italy, and, you know, to share this experience with my family, teach my nieces, and, you know, and it's really interesting every year as they're getting older, they're teaching me things, too, or things that I might have forgotten, or, you know, something, and they're like, no, you know, remember this, Auntie, you got to do this first before this, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, or, you know, they're like, oh, look, don't forget this, we're going to need this out there. You know, different things like that and seeing them catch on and also to see them so excited to go out there and be able to pick and wanting to do it and, you know, enjoying it. That's, I think, what what it's all about. I know for a fact that they'll continue it, you know, when I'm old, you know, and they have their kids and their grandkids, what have you. And, you know, I I know for sure within my family that that TEK will be continued on. So within uh, the Tonawatham community, where where does the cactus fruit fit? Where does the saguaro fruit fit? Is it like one of the main staples? Um, you know, I, I think I'm kind of comparing it to sheep on the Navajo Nation. That's like <laughs> the one thing people think of when they think of Navajos is they think of, oh, sheep. <laughs> is that something that people think of when they think of uh, Tonawatham is the saguaro fruit? Uh, I believe so. I've had, you know, some lessons and I meet people that have never heard of them. Um, but the ones that I have a lot of times, like, oh, yeah, you got the, those big poles, right? And you get the cactus <laughs> down. <laughs> and, you know, and a lot of, like, different food network and, you know, other, um, you know, food topics or magazine-related food, um, you know, have focused and done different things on the Soro fruit harvest, I guess. One of the things they're really well known for, but, you know, there's also, we have other f- traditional foods that, you know, we lived off of, and especially knowing that the soro fruit is the only, only time you can harvest it is in the summertime, you know, but we learned eventually how to be able to, when jars, I guess, were invented later on, and we're able to store it and keep it and, you know, have it for however long, the year or two, or, you know, depending on how much you make. You know, different things like that. Um, you know, we have a, a co-op farm. A big part of that farm is harvesting our traditional foods and making sure that those traditional foods are continued on. And um, But then also, too, the farm takes our traditional foods and kind of puts a new contemporary twist on them, you know, and they share recipes of mesquite flour cookies or muffins. A lot of times, right off the top of your head, you're like, what even can survive or grow in 
the Sonoran Desert. Isn't it always hot there? <laughs> but <laughs> believe it or not, you know, we do our, you know, we survived out here and our traditional foods, um, you know, are still thriving and continue. You know, we're able to use, like, like I said, mesquite beans, grind them up when we make flour. We have different sorts of um, beans that we're able to grow and can withstand, you know, triple digits. You know, we also pick choya buds. You know, you can make those with more contemporary, um, like in salads, or you can put them in salsa, you know, different things like that. Or you can just kind of boil them or steam them and eat them, you know, different things like that. You know, corn, there's like spinach, too, that can be, that's kind of basically can... It's grown on the side of the road <laughs> that you can pick and, mm. you know, make different spinach dishes with it. You know, there's all sorts. You know, we had to be really smart living out in the desert and, you know, learn how to survive. And that's what I always tell my students. And when we're talking, I'm like, you know, you need to be proud to be awesome and, you know, realize that our ancestors had to be smart living out in the desert and, not only surviving, but also finding what to eat. One of the camps Giselle is talking about is the Yodagam Youth Alliance Baidach Camp. I spoke with Demi and Carlos about the camp and the Youth Alliance. What is Yodagam Youth Alliance all about? So it's supposed to be something like a, a youth council just within our district. Uh, we're from the Shukdog district. We've been focusing on trying to revitalize um, Autumn Himdak, which is Autumn culture. And so we've been doing that by putting on storytelling events, online singing um, events, and our Baidach camp. Tell me about the Baidach camp. So we did our first one in the summer of 2017. That was in a village called Serenagia, which is within our district. And this year we're doing it in a, another village called San Pedro. Last year we had around like 50 people come through during the day and harvested early in the morning, and we had like, water balloon fights during the day when it was really hot for the kids. It was our first time taking by Dutch. You're calling for youth to join the camp. That's going to happen in a couple days here. Why is it important to have uh, the young uh, people involved in, in this? Well, if you look at like Native American history, you know, the, what's only been legal to do our ceremony, like traditional stuff for, what, 40 years or something like that? Um, when I first started learning about Himdag or culture, it's always been the elders that talk about how there's not a lot of young people doing the stuff, but I think there is a great desire from the youth to learn more, to want to know where they come from, know what our people used to do a long time ago. This is just a chance to get youth out there. I also believe culture is a way to help us heal through things, so... I was, I'm 20 now, and I started really learning about culture like when I was 15 or 16. And when I first started learning, there was a bunch of stuff that I was going through emotionally. And I'm pretty sure learning about culture pretty much saved my life, honestly. There's a group of my us, the young kids, how much come, whatever you want to say, uh, that feel the same way about culture. They're the ones that are in that group with me. It's all about just allowing the opportunity for other kids to come out and hopefully find something, the same kind of thing that helped us. I see healing coming from every aspect of traditional life, pretty much. Like, 
obviously from the food because you know you work hard to get it people know that it's good for us it kept us alive kept us strong especially in this scorching hot desert <laughs> mm-hmm. um we saw this a lot last year well i saw it a lot last year uh, getting ready for our first bite dash camp we just asked a lot of people about what we had to do to get ready for it and they talked about getting the the wapai the cactus ribs to make the great but really long sticks so we had to go out into the desert and look for these cactus ribs and take them being out there in the land out in the inside the mountains and all, uh, together there's a lot of good things happening out there especially when we take like kids a little younger than us for some reason like the conversations that happen out there when we're working get kind of personal mm-hmm. and people finally start talking about things that are bothering them there's a chance for healing in basically every aspect of the culture all right so the camp is coming up uh pretty soon can you give me the details of the camp um we're gonna be there friday evening till sunday morning we have a lot of kids out there getting in touch with our culture and land there's 32 spots taken so far so there's 28 or yeah, 28 left We've been getting a lot of help from the villages here in the Shukdok district and a couple of other organizations like NAF, the Native American Advancement Foundation, and Unity, the United National Intertribal Youth. But they've been helping donating uh, tools for the, the event and plenty of water. We are very grateful for it. That was Giselle Ramon Sabaran. You also heard from Damian Carlos. Remember, you can catch 33 other episodes by subscribing to the Toasted Sister podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to support this podcast, head on over to ToastedSisterPodcast.com and look for the support page. Music was created for Toasted Sister by C.W. Ione. His newest album, Attack of the 64s, is out now. Visit cwion.com for more information and to hear more of his music. That's cwayon.com. How many times did you listen to that Drake music video today? 
<laughs> I only did it once, what? but I like it took me to go back and watch it again because I'm like, oh my god, just the end though when it has like the mm-hmm. like the credits and the song, I was just like, oh my god, and then it was like showing everybody because some of the people I didn't recognize. I'm like, who yeah. is that? And then when they were showing them, I was like, oh my god, that's her now. Like you know, it was, yeah. yeah, I was like, that is awesome. They pretty much look the same. Um, they do. Yeah, pretty much the same. I mean, we are the same age as them because they're like class of 2006, class of 2005, class of 2007. They're like, we're like the same age as those kids. Kids. I know. I didn't even realize <laughs> that till I saw that. I was like, oh my God. I was like, that's totally like me growing up. And then I was all thinking about like, can I still have that Degrassi shirt? And I was thinking, I was like, no, because something happened to it and I think got really bad like stained really bad and then my mom ended up using it as a rag and I was so devastated yeah. <laughs> but I'd never seen Degrassi merchandise anywhere and I was just in Huntington Beach and it was like you know how you can get like shirts made like they'll have all the like the shirt press there yeah and I they had a Degrassi and I was like oh my god and I like I wore that shirt like constantly and then I was like thinking about it I was like man I wish I still had it I put it on (laughs) yeah back when like having a cool t-shirt was like a cool t-shirt because like (laughs) nowadays they sell t-shirts for anything you can make a t-shirt like with anything on it back then it was like you had to look for it you had to keep your eyes peeled for it and if you've seen somebody with it you're like where did you get your shirt <laughs> and I thought it was a cool person because I was like, I got this in California <laughs> when I came back home. I'm like, nobody has this here. <laughs> when you when you posted that on Facebook, you're like, back when you know everybody had a crush on Craig. I didn't have a crush on Craig. I had a crush on Sean. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> For the longest time until he had to move. It was crazy. I, I think I like the damaged funny, ones. Like you. you I know, and it's, like, funny because you, like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, like, I can just, like, oh, yeah, I remember that episode. (laughs) Oh, man.